2: Generally, we're not here to study foreign languages and foreign words, but there's a few Buddhist words that are worth knowing, like everybody in America or those that know yoga, know the word namaste. I bow to the light inside you, the deity inside you, however you translate it, namaste, or as my... As my niece said, Namaste, Mofo. (laughs) I said, I haven't heard those two words in a sentence before. (laughs) No, you got to love it. So uh, Sarva Mangalam is one of these words. Sarva means all, and Mangalam means uh, peace and harmony, wishes. So usually when it's translated, it's may all beings be happy or may all beings be peaceful. But this is an ancient thing that all Buddhists in India thousands of years ago, as always used to say, Buddhists say at the end of his meditations or teaching, sarva, all, mangalam, may they be fulfilled or happy, peaceful, harmonious. So a warm-up exercise is, let's say, to demystify it but also to turn our hearts and minds toward the Dharma from whatever we come to when we're busy and then we sit down to meditate. Maybe we still are rolling with the momentum of our day or our trip home or whatever we were doing before, even sleep. So it's a good way to wake up. And it's a good way to turn our hearts and minds to the Dharma path, to the multi-laned highway of awakening. Not and now Razor's Edge, but the vast highway of awakening. Let's just try to stay out of the ditches, the extremes on either side of nihilism, nothing matters, and realism or materialism. Everything is what it seems to be. Only what, what we can measure and see and hold counts materialism or realism. So, on this great way called Mahayana, the way of universal enlightenment, from me to we, not just self-growth, self-development, and self-actualization, thinking globally but acting locally, beginning with ourselves and each other. We're practicing the view meditation and action of Dzogchen, focusing on the main meditation called Treg Buddhism, Hashish. Buddhism has, uh, it divides mostly all, let's say, meditations into two kinds. There are other kinds of meditation. There's Christian censoring prayer. There's transcendental meditation. There's yogi, Raja Yoga, Samadhi meditation. There's meditating on the blue pearl. There's the divine sound, the divine light. There's visualizations. There's many kinds of meditation. There's analytical meditation, deconstructing the house that ego built logically. There's many kinds of meditation in the world. There's Jewish meditation in the Kabbalah with flaming seed syllables and the ten sephiroth, which looks like chakras to me, but you know, everything's not exactly the same. So in Buddhism, meditations are generally divided into concentration, calm and clear, shamatha, shine, samadhi, quiescence, whatever you want to call it. So many translations one pointedness, quiet, calming and clearing meditation, concentration meditation, something abiding, calm abiding. These are all translations of shamatha, shine, samadhi. And then the other, and, and that's like sharpening the tool of awareness, concentrating, focusing, gathering the light of awareness into like a laser beam so we can cut through and see deeper with insight meditation, with wisdom-oriented, wisdom-developing meditation, vipassana, deep-seeing meditations, calming, focusing meditations, and then seeing through, penetrating through meditations, like recognizing the universal laws of impermanence or no separate self or instability and dissatisfactoriness, interconnectedness. So you gain insight into the nature of things. So Samadhi and Vipassana, Shine and Lakdung, concentration and insight meditations. There's also loving-kindness meditations, purification meditations, healing meditations, and so on. In fact, loving-kindness meditation fits into the concentrating meditations, not the wisdom meditations, if you look into the scriptures and meditation manuals, interestingly. So now if we go a little further into um, Tibetan Buddhism, there's the generating phase where you build up a meditation and the dissolving phase where you dissolve the meditation Called K Rim and Zokrim. If you if you have the misfortune to try to read Tibetan books in translation, you will find these words with various translations. Krim, generation phase, building up the meditation, visualizing, and so on. And then Zokrim, the solution, dissolving, letting it dissolve back into where it came from. Krim, Zokrim, generating creative phase and dissolution or resolution phase. And the union of those two, or at the end of that, is Mahamudra-Zogchen. So now let's talk about the non-dual practices of Mahamudra and Zogchen, especially Zogchen. Let's stay with that to to keep it simple. In Mahamudra, (laughs) there are (laughs) pistons... I, I'm just channeling. In ma- Let's not talk about Mahamudra. Let's talk about Dzogchen. In Mahamudra, they're in pith Instructions. <laughs> <laughs> Oy vey, got the Himmel. <laughs> That's my grandmother's voice. In Mahamudra, there are Piss Instructions like, the three points of Mahamudra, Sechik or one pointed. As I said, Mahamudra is a little more gradual. So one pointed, Sechik, focusing, intense concentration, Samadhi. Sechik, Ronam, equal taste, everything equal. So equanimity, seeing everything is equal, letting go of judgments of good and bad, helpful and harmful. And then third, non-meditation, beyond meditation, pure presence or awareness. So you can see this is a slightly gradual scheme. One-pointedness, equanimity or one taste, single flavor, and beyond meditation, beyond formal meditation, beyond the dualism, polarity of concentration and distraction. Dzogchen and Mahmoud always explained, according to the view of the bigger picture of things just seen as as they are, from that comes the meditation of non-meditation, and from that comes the action according to conditions and circumstances, not according to our karmic compulsions and patterns, but proactive Buddha activity, not reactive karma activity. We'll talk about this more at the end of the week with integrating the dharma and practice into daily life. So the view and the meditation, the view like the sky, the meditation like a mountain, the action inexhaustible like the ocean's waves. These are real metaphors. The view like the sky, leave it as it is. This is called in Dzogchen, the four pith instructions, the chok shi, the four droppings. These are hard to find in books, although they're in books. You can read a book on Dzogchen, you might find this on one page out of the whole thing. Choke shakshi, hard to translate. Chok means supreme or ultimate. Shak means resting. So it sounds like meditative equipoise. shock. but what it really means is leaving it as it lay, just resting, letting it drop, letting it go. Kala Rinpoche, my guru, Mahamudra guru used to say, like the snowflake settling in a lake, just let it settle or raindrops in the lake. The moisture arises from the ocean and returns to the ocean. It may land first in the earth or a lake or a river, but returns to the ocean. It's a cycle of a whole, right? And it's water. It's water, it's snowflakes. It's water if it's uh, whatever that's called, hail. It's water if it's mist, it's still H2O. It's water when it lands in the stream of the lake. It's water when it lands on the frozen ice. It's water landing on water. So the thoughts arise in the, let's call it the mind, for lack of a better term, in the field of consciousness. And where can they go but resolve back into it, just like the waves in the sea, just like the, the water I was describing. So Milarepa is saying in the beginning, meditation, thoughts, feelings, what's going on in the mind in the beginning, it seems like a roaring waterfall. Then in the middle, it becomes like a flowing river or stream. And finally, oceanic. Oceanic. So that's kind of Mahamudra progress. In Zogchen, it's a little more swooping down from above with the view. Everything pure and perfect as it is, primordially pure, spontaneously manifesting, just as it's supposed to be. According to this practice of the four leaving it as it is, is the four choke shock, the four droppings, the four letting it be, is the four choke shock. View like a mountain, imperturbable, regardless of what falls on it or grows on it. Leave it as it is. The meditation I'm thinking in Tibetan, where where view is like a mountain. But really, a better way of doing it is view like the sky. Inclusive, open, unchanged by the weather or clouds, like space. Space is bigger than sky and unchanging, no matter what the local weather is in the atmosphere. View like the sky, like space. Big sky mind, open, aware, the big tiggly, the infinite cosmic... Awareness of presence. Meditation like a mountain, unshakable, imperturbable, regardless of what falls on it or grows on it. An action inexhaustible like the ocean's waves, according to causes and conditions. If there's no winds, there's no waves. If there's no earthquakes, there's no waves. The ocean doesn't get bored and start having to wave. Also, there's no one, from this point, in this metaphor, no one to wave to. Wave to the other waves. I mean, that's us. Bubbles in the sea, waves in the waves in the, in the sea. Not Titanic, not canoes, not jet skis, not swimmers, not sharks. One taste. That's the university. So ironing out the ocean's waves doesn't improve it at all. Flatlining our thinking brain doesn't change the situation. It'll just pop back up. The mind is supposed to think. The body's supposed to feel. The ears are supposed to hear. That's the natural function of innate awareness, of Buddha mind. That's not a distraction, necessarily. That's the natural function of innate Buddha mind. The mind is supposed to remember. That doesn't mean you're living in the past. Remembering is a here-now activity. Awareness is remembering. Mindful of that. Not living in the past. That's a nowness activity. Awareness is planning for your college kid fund or something, or for your, you know, next vacation or how you, uh, where you're going after here. Planning is a nowness awareness activity. Living in the now doesn't mean becoming stupid, or mum, or like a bump on a log. I know in Shanti Davis' classic, "How to Be a Bodhisattva," the Avatara. Entering the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhicharya Avatara by the peacemaster a thousand years ago, Shanti Deva, that everybody, Mahayana Buddhism, cherishes and studies in the chapter under Anger and Patience, which is a very, very important chapter. I think it's the most important chapter, chapter four or five, about anger and patience. One of the statements remember, this is written a thousand years ago, was, "When you're feeling angry, be like a log." And my friends and I all looked at each other and said, what the fuck? (laughs) This ain't modern psychology. (laughs) I guess it means don't just react in kind. But a log might be a little extreme, like an unfeeling dead, you know, thing of, of wood. So don't catastrophize or, you know, take everything to the extreme. Drew, where's Drew? Drew, just to give an example. (laughs) I need a straight man. Thank you, Drew. (laughs) (sighs) To view like the sky, meditation like a mountain, action inexhaustible and responsive, compassionate, responsive, empathic, like the ocean waves. And then integration or enhancement, both then stepping up, stepping out, living the life beyond sacred and profane. So these are the four points of Dzogchen, like the sky, like the mountain, like the ocean's waves. And the fourth one is sometimes said to be like a mirror or like water that mixes with everything, mixes with mud, mixes with everything. Anyway, integration, grokking is probably the best translation, making it one with oneself and becoming it. So when we're practicing, today I introduced a little more explicitly the sky gazing practice after we did the breathing um, and energy purification exercise, Calming, clearing, and focusing, and energizing, and putting, getting into it. Then, and these are the instructions in case you're new here, or you come from another meditation tradition. Eyes open, ears open, nose open. I know it's a lot to keep tra- to keep track to. Of, but it's like when you first start driving, it seems impossible. When your first lesson, you don't know how you, you know, you only have two hands, but you have to do all these things at once and look in front, look in the rear view mirror, look in the side view mirror, listen to the backseat drivers and all the rest. You know, push levers and buttons and things and, you know, paddle both feet (laughs) or whatever you figure out to do that they tell you not to do. (laughs) But after a while, what are you doing? You're multitasking like crazy you're texting you're drinking cappuccinos you're shaving you're putting on makeup while you 're driving you're punching the you know the radio stations or you know your MP3 or your whatever you have there i don 't know what m1 m17 MP3, your cassette player, your boombox, you know whatever you have i 'm still sore that my car maker took away my CD slot. <laughs> I had that technology under control. <laughs> so, eyes open. Ears, let's not distract ourselves. <laughs> eyes open, ears open, nose open, mouth open, throat open. Not like this. Not like Rodin's Le Ponce, the thinker. Mm. Not trying to do your taxes. You know, like, hmm, licking the pencil. Uh, crap. But... Nowness awareness open as it is at ease. Not staring up and giving yourself a headache, not looking at your third eye, just gazing, gently gazing. And gazing with your ear uh, gazing with your eyeballs, gazing with your earballs and your nose balls and your body ball, feeling your sensations not looking inside for anything or trying to find your quiet corner, your comfy you know, meditation spot, but integrating everything into awareness. Everything is grist for the mill of awareness, as the fearless Master Jingmu Lingpa sings. Everything is grist for the mill of awareness. In the beginning, maybe we need to protect it a little, like you protect a little sapling but later it's a big tree and it protects and gives shade and food and you know to everyone sky gazing space mingling infinite dissolving letting everything go in openness and spacious clarity awareness that's the instruction based on the three naturals arshish just sitting just breathing just being present, the three naturals, natural body, natural breath, natural heart, mind. So that's the instruction, that's what we do. Notice I'm not saying breath counting, breath watching, radiating, reabsorbing light rays, mantra chanting, waiting for the gong to ring, trying not to think. I'm not saying calming the mind, the mind's a good servant, but a poor master, the problems are under its power too much. We can be mindful of thoughts, that's mindful meditation. We can be mindful of the state of no thought, that's mindful meditation. Neither are better. Tinley Norbu Rinpoche, great late lama, said, the moving mind is the nirmanakaya, the still mind is the dharmakaya. That pretty much leveled everything. It's all kaya, Buddha dimension. Perfect. I thought that was awesome. I don't even know if he found that in the Tibetan. I think that was his own experience. as like a tip. The moving mind is the nirmanakaya, tuku, embodiment, incarnation, manifestation. Holy, holy, holy. And the still mind is dharmakaya. It's kaya. We don't have to... Oh, I'm losing my words. Um, overvalue stillness. Of course, it's relaxing to meditate and you can get your blood pressure down and you know your stress level down and other things. Those are practical health benefits. But there's more to it than that. You can also get your level of separation down, your level of alienation because of separation or loneliness. You know, there's a lot of charts in the wellness field, not just physical wellness or physical health, mental health, emotional health, psychic health, relational health, communal health, environmental health, to consider balance and bring things back to balance, maybe by leaning the other way a little. So here we have a meditation retreat, a monastic style, traditionalist, Buddhist meditation retreat. Of course, we're trying to, make it accessible so we have like men and women together and we have chairs as well as cushions Oh, even that we have cushions is an adaptation we used to sit on the floor and on the ground in india or on a sleeping bag to try to you know prop up a bottom or on a brick we tried all kinds of things one of my friends used to sit on a brick he said it kept him awake (laughs) i said i see hemorrhoids in your future (laughs) You know, I'm a a visionary that way. (laughs) Jack Quartfield famously says he used to sit on the edge of, he was a monk in Thailand for one or two years and speaks Thai. So in the early 70s, he used to sit on the edge of a well so he wouldn't fall asleep. I said, hmm, I don't think I'm gonna tell my students that. (laughs) Bad, Bad example, good inspiration. Millarep in his cave used to sit with a a candle on his head, what they call a butter lamp. Think about that, with the hot butter meaning the oil in the lamp and the fire, and all night. Whoops! (laughs) There, see what happens. Even if you don't nod out. (laughs) Jigme Lingpa used to tie his top knot to the roof of his cave. I don't know, tie. Maybe he had a bungee cord. Maybe he had a picture hanger (laughs) up there. Maybe he had, I don't know, a Garuda up there that was holding it. Anyway, he was tied to the top of his cave so he wouldn't fall over with his all night vigils. This is a little bit extreme, but this is also, you know, stories from the tradition of how hard people strove for great enlightenment, not just a few moments of peace or vacation from themselves and from thinking. Milarepa turned green from living on nettle soup. This is supposed to be history. And, you know, you can make soup from nettles. We have nettles in this country. You can try boiling it. That's mainly all he had up in his cave above the snow line, line, line in the Himalayas. So he lived on nettle soup and he turned green. And you can always see in his pictures his greenish hue, not from envy, but from nettles. So renunciation, sacrifice, and hardship, hard work, is not the most popular part of Western Buddhism. In fact, we don't even hear those words, but they're there if you pay attention and if you look deeper. Payment Children's delightful books are by nun Payment Children, who has vowed and forsworn many of those things, you know, worldly pleasures. So it's just not what she's stressing. We don't want everybody to become a nun or a monk and renounce family and work and the world in that way. The thing to renounce or to let go of is egotism and clinging and selfishness. That's the point of renunciation and renouncing, believing in our thoughts and feelings. It's good to feel your feelings, but also you don't have to totally believe in them just because you feel something doesn't mean that you have to directly act on it. in in retaliation or response, you can think about how, when, or if to respond. So I like to say you can't believe everything you think, not just everything you read. And yet we're all addicted to thoughts. It's a substance. If you look at the 12-step program, it's just like the other substances. Perhaps I have to admit that I'm under the power of thoughts and seek a higher power or a higher sanity i can't remember what it says but thoughts fits right in there like alcohol or drugs as a substance that we're addicted to who can tell me the first step come on pop it out i need to hear it i came to believe that the pa- i'm powerless before my thoughts i'm listening I came to believe that I'm powerless, the power of my thoughts, and my life became unmanageable, and I have to rely on a higher power. I'm going to fill in, like, awareness to, what, bring me back to health and sanity? Is that basically it? Anyway, so thoughts fits right in. Just like being addicted to alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, food. You know, there's alco- uh, um, Food Anonymous, whatever it's called, O.A., Anyway, I think that this is a great program for reconditioning and deconditioning, and our thought addiction is one of the most pernicious because it's not even named or recognized most of the time. Anyway, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, the basic instructions of the three naturals and then Dzogchen Trectured seeing through, being through in the form of sky gazing, and I'll go more into it. The eyes, the gaze cast in space, the outer sky, the outer infinite. All thoughts and feelings and perceptions cast into the inner infinite of the mind of awareness. The inner sky, the inner infinite. And then everything, including meditation or aspiration, striving, dropped or cast off into the secret infinite, just being, not doing, achieving, or becoming. Just naked being, mingling the outer, inner, and innermost or secret sky or infinite or emptiness. This is called Namkar Naljur in Tibetan, sky space union yoga. Mingling or realizing the inseparability of shunyata, uh, emptiness or sky or space or the infinite shunyata, and lucidity or awareness or cognizance. What word do you want there? So it's not just empty, like an empty glass or room. It's like, Thukor show you say it's like a sunlit room, lit with bright, a brilliant awareness. So any questions, please?
1: So that actually really spoke to me because you know, having some Vajrayana practice, guru yoga. Um, what I'm experiencing right now and, and feeling some resistance towards is a shift in, you know, before my practice was, there was a lot of, you know, bringing Tara in, bringing Tara into the heart and you know, in whatever, and now there's a there's a big shift, and I experienced this a little bit last year here, um, with my Vajrasattva practice, where it's not so much bringing it in, but it's instead starts to fill me up, and it's it doesn't seem to originate from out here. The, the, the point of origin seems to be now inside. And, um, of course, that puts me into unbearable state of devotion, which is giving me trouble.
2: <laughs> I'm listening. Do you want me to interrupt? Yeah, that's good enough. Um, that sounds good. What's the trouble? I mean, unbearable sounds troublesome, but, you know, like, you seem to have arrived at the state of guru yoga, and from outside, like, beseeching or praying to, to arising from within. How many times have I said all those who are on high or arising from within? It depends on how you look at it. Is it the Buddha and all those down coming down to you in the picture, and or in your heart, and the heart is one of them, and in their heart is a rainbow, you know, arising from within, beyond outside and inside. So...
1: Well, my whole perspective of everything is shifting, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of scary.
2: It is scary.
1: Um, You know, we, we have our stories in Buddhism about, you know, how everyone was our mother and compassionate outreach towards them and that feeling and a sense of gratitude, and you know all of that, and and now I'm going all Avalokiteshvara, and they're not my mothers anymore. It's like they're my children, and, oh yes. my, and like you know, and I get these states yes. of
2: oh mothers. My. Just an example: mothers, children, parents, lovers, you know, pets, whatever, everything. In, in, as you said, the story of reincarnation includes infinite many lifetimes. But as you notice, I'm not stressing that or worrying about that here. So it sounds like your practice of Guru Yoga, which I have not been stressing here, but you've been practicing for years and you also have your Tibetan Lama Mi'kmar um, with his strong Tara practice and lineage. So that sounds like it's coming up um, the way it's supposed to. Your yeah. inner guru rising and filled with unbearable devotion. So again, I'm going to say unbearable sounds, you know, excruciating or, or like hard to bear, but it's also devotion. So they say one tear of devotion wipes away uh, aeons of negative karma.
1: I must have a lot then. So
2: maybe unbearable is, it gets you to cry and crying in devotion washes away a lot of other self-concerns and worries and habits. And then you rest in that, whatever that means, you know, you, you're in that. Crying's not worse than laughing, but unbearable devotion is like, to some people, a goal of guru yoga. I would say more like enlightenment or, you know, oneness is the goal, but unbearable devotion uh, is a portal and delivers you there. It transports you beyond yourself and your mind and your thoughts and your self-references. So I would say go for that as long as you're not miserable, falling apart, you know, become a puddle on the floor that we have to sweep up and put in your bed. I don't want that. I almost never cry, but I I have to admit if I'm talking to somebody really personal or trustworthy, then I say, but I, I seem to only cry from devotion. and I don't mean like all the time. I'm just saying like, you know, that occasionally okay so i hope that's helpful you should go, go with it and trust it and it is uh, can be terrifying
1: i mean i it's it's very strange cuz there's a a part of me that really enjoys it because it is very expanding and but there's a part of me where it's like you know I suppose that's some form of judgment that says it's hard. Is it hard? No. It's not hard to
2: do. So what does hard mean? It's hard to bear? Yeah. It's like too much, too much energy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit much.
2: Well, sometimes also you have to take it easy a little bit, you know, and take a rest or break or... Thank you. Um, Milarepa, the greatest of Tibetan yogis and also her national greatest poet author of the world classic 100,000 Songs of Milarepa a book you can read in several different translations the 100,000 Extemporaneous Songs of Enlightenment by Milarepa Um, Milarepa said Everybody talks about Milarepa and his cave yogi lifestyle and his renunciation and how hard he worked. He's the embodiment of um, paramita of effort, virya paramita. Is that number three or number four? So he's the embodiment of effort and enthusiastic, joyous practice, Milarepa. And yet he himself said, Our lineage is a lineage of devotion. Our lineage is a lineage of devotion. And he said, when I am alone in the cave in the mountains, all the Buddhas and Gurus are with me. My Lord and Father Guru Marpa, the translator, is with me. Ours is a lineage of devotion. So that's done a lot for many of us. Not everyone is a bhakti or a devotee. Some are more philosophical, hyper-rational, janis, Some are more physical, energetic, like yoga types. But devotion is a great portal or transporter beyond ourselves. Chikinima Rinpoche, who I know you're devoted to and you went to his retreat here last month, probably, his five-day retreat or whatever it was, He often quotes the third Karmapa, who was the head of our Kagyu lineage. Now we're up to the 17th. The third Karmapa said, in the moment of devotion, Rigpa naturally dawns. In the moment of compassion, Rigpa naturally dawns. So in other words, it transports us beyond ourselves. So it's, you know, when the sun shines intensely, it's naturally light outside. There's no cloud, it's all cloud interference. So in the moment of devotion, Rigba naturally dawns. That's one of the great quotes of the Kagyu lineage. It's not just about effort and philosophy and Mahamudra, which sounds abstract and vast. But also take it easy with yourself. Don't go over the edge, you know. Thank you. Questions? Sharing? Yes.
3: Hello. Hi. I'm Nikki. Hi, Nikki. So I've been trying to use these images of sky and mountain and ocean, and it's it's working for me. I'm able to do that. Um, and when this idea of kind of weather is coming through, like you mentioned, hail, and I have some of that. And but then you'll say things like "Eureka," or "Enjoy the joy," <laughs> how sweet it is, and I'm like, no. <laughs> it's hailing, it's, it's rough, it's not, it doesn't feel sweet. And so I guess what I'm thinking is, like you mentioned 12-step and for a long time I went to al and they would say, be grateful to the alcoholic and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head or heart around that idea. And I just wonder, is, is that, like, am I grateful for the hail, is that?
2: I don't know, are you? <laughs> it seems not.
3: Sometimes. In hindsight, twenty years later, maybe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, time is an illusion. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not going to play games with you. Um, is it always hailing in your mind or in your no. experience? So, no. are you grateful for the, you know, the sweet rain or the cool winds or the, the beautiful blossoms or, or whatever else, metaphorically is happening in your life? Sometimes I'm just neutral. Life? Yeah. Right. There's good, bad, and neutral, and everything in between. So gratitude is something, you know, to cultivate. And maybe we could, and then we could even learn to be grateful for the difficulties in the sense that, as the Buddhists say, your teacher, and Dalai Lama loves to quote this, that your teacher or your enemy or critic or, you know, the unwanted, it means. It could be a disease. You know, the unwanted is your greatest teacher. And teaches you humility and patience and He doesn't say this, I'm going to add, you tell me if this is right, that you're not entirely in control. That's an important lesson, wouldn't you say? We're not entirely in control. We do the best we can and have to let go, and whatever happens, happens. And we keep doing the best we can thoroughly and let go. It's like parenting, and whatever happens, happens. And we keep doing the best we can and letting go. Whatever happens, happens. That's from the Tao Te Ching. That's ancient, timeless wisdom. The Master does what needs to be done as well as possible, and let's go, and whatever happens, happens. Not being overly invested in the outcome, not being overly disappointed if it doesn't work out, but you can keep trying. It doesn't mean you just throw them the kids away. You did the best, and now, you know, okay, you say you're grown up, you're 13-year-old, you're 15-year-old, you're 18-year-old, okay, good luck. You 21-year-old, you 30-year-old, you know, good luck.
3: So like in those parenting moments, because I can relate to that, I don't have to enjoy all the hardness all the time. Right. Okay.
2: Sometimes it's really hard. Yes, it is. Obviously, everybody knows. Even if you're not a parent, sometimes it's really hard. But parenting, you know, is uh, not for sissies. Thank you. Gratitude, Um, a great saint, I think it was Meister Rockhart, said, gratitude is the only prayer I need. And he was like the main Christian mystic of Europe. But that's what he's saying. Gratitude is the only prayer I need. That's pretty awesome. Brother David Standerast has a website called Gratitude. He has a book called Gratitude. That's like his main teaching. He's a Zen Catholic Teacher, wonderful. So we try to cultivate that, like somebody was saying, about realizing that through the rounds of rebirth, everybody has been our mother, our father, our grandparent, our child, our lover, and other connections, so that we realize that we're all in the same boat, and we rise and fall, sink or swim together. We're not separate, we're not better than, we're not that different than, and feel like appreciation and gratitude. For our benefactors, for those who introduced us to the world, for those who took care of us, whatever, you know, mixed weather we might remember from our upbringing. Like we could remember, I mean, all of this is open to questioning. Uh, We could remember possibly our miracle mom or our miracle dad, the best part of them, the best thing time we ever had with them in order to balance off some of our selective memory about our miserable childhood. I mean, I had an intact family, no big tragedies. How great was that? Uh, when I was a kid, I didn't know that I was always the jumping out of the window and, and going out with my friends when I wasn't supposed to, or getting in trouble. We're trying to get away. Oh, I lived on the other side of the world for 20 years. That must say something. (laughs) (laughs) My father said, Jeffrey, I don't know if you know this, but your mother really took that personally. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know you mothers. How could that be? How could that happen? <laughs> Look, we have a whole lot, a row of mothers in the front here. <laughs> oh, surrounded by mothers, it feels good. But, you know, as you grow up and then maybe you become a parent or an uncle or a mentor or something, a benefactor yourself, and you start to appreciate the other side of it. Like, I'm concerned for their safety rather than I'm in Kathmandu here. I'm 20 years old. I'm grown up. Why are my parents worried about what I'm doing? Even though we have no e- phone, no email, no you know communications. It's 1971. Why are they worried? They have other kids. <laughs> <laughs> So into every life a little hail must fall, obviously. So I've gotten a lot out of the teaching that's in that chapter four or five of the way of the bodhisattvas about patience and anger, patience and forbearance as the antidote to anger. So you can still feel your anger, but then you can decide how to respond, not just retaliate in kind, not just let it become violence or rage or bitterness so you can process it healthily. From the unwanted. Ani Pema Children, who's a wonderful teacher, and I recommend her books. She's still alive in Nova Scotia, Halifax, Gampo Abbey, our monastery. Ani Pema Children, Pema, to many. you can see her on YouTube. She's an American nun on the Trungpa's lineage, Shamala. Pema Children says, and I know she's quoting from Tibetan Buddhism, but I haven't really seen it exactly, the original words. She says, There is no absolute good and bad. There's only the wanted and the unwanted. That's Buddhist philosophy. That's pretty awesome. That's steep. But you, you make the objections and you, you look into it. There's no uh, uh, absolute good or bad, only the wanted and the unwanted. And those are just so subjective. Uh, questions before we end? Anything? Yes. Scott.
4: Um, I was debating whether to uh, share or not, but a lot of people um, struggling over this week, I would like to say, is I've been coming for about 10 years. I've been listening, I've been trying. And uh, about an hour or so ago, I had my first sustained visit with the view. it was very powerful, of course, um but it only came about after ten years of really listening and hearing Yeshe tell me not to think about it and and to give up on wanting it and just letting it come and letting it be and I had read some long chempa right before it occurred, and some some interpretations and critiques of champa that, and I don't know, it all finally came together. And it was, I closed my eyes, it was there. I opened my eyes, it was there. I had no visual where I used to try to not focus on anything. I just, my eyes were open, they could see clearly, but I wasn't focused on anything, and uh, I just want to say thank you to you, the Sangha, and to let everybody know that the effort is effortless effort pays off. Uh, all of our efforts that drive us in the wrong way, you know, and sometimes we wind up in these dead ends or in these cool and dead ends, you know, that look kind of certain ways, but uh, it's, Whatever it is, it's there, it permeates everything. It's always been there. And we just have to allow it to come in, whether that's surrender, whether that's uh, non-grasping. But There was also in there this understanding that there is a separation, but the reality is we do have a dualistic world. But there's this non-dual world that slides right in between all those dualisms. And uh, it's not giving up on either of them. It's accepting both of them at the same time. I felt this. And that's when really the unity kind of slammed the door wide open. And my heart just blew up. So thank you
2: you should thank yeshe and yeshe <laughs> I think we should give Scott a gong for that sutra that he spontaneously spoke did everybody hear him thank you Scott that was beautiful well it doesn't take everybody ten years just to know that <laughs> he's a slow learner yeah also, if you think you can't do it because you're a motor mind or I just say make it up you know like a hyper rational lawyer or accountant or computer nerd. Scott's a computer nerd and a major data process guy, so. You know, if there's anybody who's thinking a lot and in that, which seems to be the other end of the mythopoetic universe that I'm, you know, we were just talking about with the you know, it's Scott. So (laughs) even Scott's a Chinois, you know, every flight needs an engineer. (laughs) I mean, he's also a photographer, but I hope you're getting my point. That's why Buddha said, and it was a radical war cry at his time, you know, anybody can be as enlightened as the Buddha by walking, you know, plumbing this path. Not by being my, Buddha, my follower, not by being a Buddhist, by practicing in this way. Not just one son of God, not just men, not just monks, not just monks or nuns, not just learned uh, Buddhist scholars, mystics, anybody. And millions have. It's awesome. And thank you all. And thank you, Scott, for your uh, testimonial Beautiful and your beautiful sutra like words. I couldn't have said it better.